0: To walk the road of peace, sometimes we need to be ready to climb the mountain of conflict. Tommy said, Mr President, you're wrong.
1: Now that takes a lot of guts.
2: I'm for peace and quiet, Mr Lude. It's why I came to the UN, quiet
0: diplomacy. There's a lot to talk about this month. The sweet spot for Australia and Indonesia. We'll be working more closely together, it would seem, in renewables, education and health. So lots of people-to-people connections but how will Indonesian politics play out when President Djokovododo leaves office? Now, there's a question. We'll also head to Thailand, where it's not clear who'll lead the country. Will the Thai Senate endorse the people's elected choice and allow the Move Forward Party to take office, this big generational shift in theory anyway? And we'll ask whether Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's visit to Beijing can help smooth US-China relations. All will be made clear with the expert guidance of Greg Barton, one of Australia's leading Indonesia experts. Hello there, Greg.
1: Hi, good morning. Great to be with you, Geraldine.
0: Also joining us, Melissa Conley tyler um, Melissa's Executive Director of Asia Pacific 4D, which tries to foster collaboration between the development, diplomacy and defence communities. Hello, hello Melissa. Good morning, Geraldine. And here in the studio, I'm very pleased to welcome Hervé Lemahieu, the Director of Research at the Lowy Institute, also a newish dad, well, a second-time dad, but (laughs) hello there. Thanks,
3: Geraldine.
0: Hervé. Now, your recent Lowy poll, Hervé, includes what you call a feelings thermometer that rates Australians' warmth towards other countries. And it's found that the temperature of Australian attitudes towards Indonesia uh, has barely moved in recent years, that they're stubbornly mild. Very amusing, I thought. Um, have we got a fever now, a bit more after Jocko Badodo's visit?
3: It, it, yeah, perhaps, perhaps. But I'm sceptical, actually, because we, you know this is years of polling now. We've done this for 19 years, and the results have always been a bit tepid. And, and it goes to show there's a sort of paradox in the Australia-Indonesia uh, relationship, which is at the top level, government-to-government uh, to government level, uh, things have never been better. I think there's a new sort of maturity and ease uh, with which the two governments um, communicate with each other, uh, certainly with a new government in Canberra, but also just Chokowi and his administration and his very impressive foreign minister. But at the people-to-people level, there there seems to be indifference at best. Um, And in fact, when we've polled Australians on whether uh, they think Indonesia is even a democracy, most Australians are unsure, hmm. um, and uh, and it goes to show that that, that really the the people-to-people people side of things is, is very underdone, uh, very underdone. If you think about um, Asian diasporas living in Australia, I mean, Indonesia, the Indonesian community is not the biggest one. No, uh, even though it's a, it's our nearest and largest neighbour. So so there is something afoot here.
0: So yeah, if you did the same poll there, you'd you'd have it benign and we uh, have, mild. Yeah, exactly right. So it's not just an Australian <laughs> problem; it's an
3: Indonesian in some sense uh, as well. So we've done a, a poll in an Indonesia in 2021. We did one in 2011, and, and the, um, the the thermometer had dipped a little bit in Indonesia, but that's because we did our polling two months after AUKUS, uh, which, as you recall, was, was quite controversial in Indonesia uh, and did permeate the public consciousness a little bit. So this is view, attitudes of Indonesians uh, on Australian Australians. Um, I think it's recovered since then a little bit, but again, it's, it's mostly indifference.
0: Mm. Now, Greg Barton, there were a lot of practical things that came out of that visit by Jokowi. How do you see this? Um, Do you think, would you see it as us getting back on track? Is that sort of more or less the words you'd use with our neighbour?
1: Well, to go back to Herve's comments, uh, Geraldine, one of the ironies is that we're going through a bit of a a golden period of relations with Indonesia at the elite level, the government to government level, certainly, and and probably uh, in many ways for business as well. So this very brief uh, but important visit, probably the last visit that Jokowi will make before um, next February's elections. It was really significant, but it didn't so much turn things around as, as just consolidate what was already good news. Uh, as Herbe was saying, the, the challenge is to get beyond that section of Australian society and Indonesian society that know each other well and and feel confident and encouraged by that relationship to get people who don't yet know each other to know each other. Mm. Uh, that's the challenge of people to people. Tourism is part of it, so this announcement about making it easier for Indonesians to visit Australia, and, and perhaps also for Australians to visit Indonesia, uh, that's important. The announcements about university campuses is important. The general focus on people-to-people relations suggests there's an awareness in both Jakarta and uh, Canberra. That's where we've got to do the heavy lifting.
0: I mean, given you're in one of the universities that will establish a campus in Indonesia, what might that mean in practical terms for people-to-people relationships?
1: I'm really optimistic about this and and really encouraged by it. Um, Deakin's planning to open a campus next year in Bandung and there's still some work to be done and some some final sign-ups to be done, but it, it seems to be well on track. Uh, I understand that Western Sydney's opening a campus in Surabaya, uh, Central Queensland University will be joining these three and, and Monash University, which already has a campus in Jakarta. Um, the, the plan with all of these is to start small, but to grow fairly quickly, uh, much more substantial and I know on the deacon side, the the plan is that um, Indonesian academics working at this campus in Bandung will be very very much part of the deacon community, and and coming and going uh, for research and teaching, and uh, Australian academics spending time in Indonesia as well. So. Of course, those academics probably are not the ones that need to be convinced, but it's their students and, uh, you know, Australian students who get a chance to study in Indonesia, Mm. Uh, more Indonesian students who get exposed to Australia. That's, the, the you know, if this turns over the next decade into you know, possibly tens of thousands of students across all these universities, that's really substantial.
0: There seemed an obvious warmth, didn't there, uh, uh, on display between Prime Minister Albanese and President Wadodo. But soon, of course, he'll be gone. And the focus, because constitutionally he can't stand for a third time, it'll shift to Indonesia's presidential elections early next year, which are looking <laughs> to be a very hot affair. What? Who are the front runners? Uh, Greg?
1: Well, um, we've got three people who could could be president. I mean, we may be surprised by a fourth. But at this stage, we think that uh, Jokowi's pick of, from his party, PDIP, of the governor of central Java, uh, Gunja Pranowo, uh, that's the man most likely to be president. Uh, mind you, current polling sort of counterintuitively has Jokowi's former rival and current uh, minister of defence, uh Prabowo onto, yeah as a rather controversial figure given his um, military past and some dark chapters uh, he's done quite well in the polling lately and then coming up the rear is Anas Pasyiden former governor of Jakarta uh, a very affable and an impressive individual but damaged by that campaign to become governor in 2017 which which saw crowds on the streets of Jakarta and some really nasty Uh, Sentiment amongst those who helped knock back um, Jokowi's close friend a Chinese Christian um, interim governor, who never got a chance to run because he was charged with blasphemy. Mm. So uh, there's a lot of history in this, and yet the remarkable thing, Geraldine, about Indonesian politics is it's it's so affable and willing to try and find compromise and avoid confrontation, unlike some of Southeast Asia's neighbours where politics can be a fight to the death. So. You know, that's an upside, even though it's often frustrating. Um, all all three uh, candidates are very different. Uh, Gunja and um, Anis would be the most straightforward and, from Australia's point of view, most welcome because they would be fairly international and, and we think, progressive. Uh, Prabowo he doesn't feel anyone with confidence, but he's likely to be hands-off and probably have a, a cabinet of technocrats who wouldn't change things too much. So, well, Why would you think he'd
0: be get- hands-off?
1: Well, partly because he uh, ha- hasn't shown any great appetite to get involved in practical policy. He did uh, did weigh in in a rather naive proposal at the Shangri-La Dialogue for peace in Ukraine, but he doesn't show much aptitude or interest in, in policy. Uh, you got the impression that he was only running in this race because otherwise his parliamentary party wouldn't stand a showing at the parliamentary elections, which occur at the same time next February. And he, he just seems, I mean, he's older and seems tireder. He doesn't seem hungry. knows a lot for about power. foreign policy. Yes, he's, I mean, look, he's not a fool. Uh, um, and he, at that last election in 2019 that he lost for the second time, he managed to present himself as a cosmopolitan international, um, uh, you know, statesman, which was quite a turnaround given the way he contested the 2014 election and given his military past. Um, but, yeah. I, I don't think anyone would choose him as their first pick.
3: He is a controversial figure, um, no doubt about it. He has managed to to turn around his image a little bit, and I guess the the silver lining, I suppose, in in Prabowo is that you would probably have a continuation of that slightly more internationally uh, outward-looking uh, um, legacy of Jokowi, uh, you know, which is all, not always a given for well, for Indonesia. Well, it's only happened I mean,
0: late. That's it, right,
3: exactly. <laughs> so you know, they've been unusually active on the global stage the last few years. Jokowi was typecast as a sort of domestic uh, reformer. Uh, he came to the global stage a bit late, but he quite liked it, actually, and they've done some amazing things, and uh, I think Prabowo has got a taste of that as well, and if it is him, um, then we can expect a, a slightly more internationally engaged Indonesia. I mean, that would be something to look for in the next election.
0: Trained it, done, uh, Melissa, I haven't forgotten you. <laughs> uh, I mean, you've just been this on this swing through various states. I wonder whether you heard much, we'll talk about Thailand in a moment, but you know, one of the things Prabowo said in a recent interview is that the cost of doing politics is too expensive. Frankly, we have to study the democracy we're implementing, um, which was quite an interesting remark people seized upon. Um, and I just wondered whether that whole discussion around the way in which Southeast Asia um, does do democracy was uh, came up in conversations with you.
2: Mm. I think the people we were talking to were very cautious about talking about other ASEAN (laughs) member states and probably wouldn't have gone into Indonesian politics. Uh,
0: Well, look, let's move to uh, Thailand because um, there's there's a lot at stake in Thailand and you've just been there and had a very, quite an intensive exposure to quite a few officials. And this great sort of, well, it's really a a moment of truth, I think, isn't it? Inflection points overused. But, Mm. you know, will this young man, um, uh, Pitta, will he, representing a new generation and a whole new style of politics, is
2: he going to become prime minister? What's your judgment, uh, Mm. uh, Melissa? Yes, well, we certainly asked people when we were there. So I was there for a Department of Defence dialogue, bringing together officials and non-officials for the first time in Thailand. Um, given the importance of the military in Thailand, it is you know vital to form those relationships and to, to look at what similarities and differences exist. And yes, we were there at a time of great uncertainty. Um, so what's happened is, you know, the election was in May, the results were finalised in June, and we know that move forward, uh, Peter's party, the new party, um, is the largest block of seats. Uh, just this week, Parliament sat and we're now waiting to see, you know, can move forward, you know, in the coalition discussions, can can it be that Peter will become the PM? Um, and, you know, other questions like, will the Constitutional Court get involved? I think from the perspective of his voters, it, it would they would see it as, will the Thai establishment allow Peter to become PM? Mm. And I've got to say, not a single person I talked to was prepared to give a prediction of what's going to happen. Mm. So Why? I mean, w- yes, why? Um, I think, uh, well, I, I'm not an expert in Thai politics the way some, some people are and I admit that. Um, but I, I think it is very much an elite bargain discussion. Um, what are Thai elites going to allow to happen or not happen? And... In that sense, it is definitionally closed door in a black box that the rest mm. of us can't see, which I imagine must be very frustrating if you're one of the, the young people who just voted for Peter and it is so opaque and unclear uh, whether he will be allowed to take that Prime Minister position.
0: Look, if he does get in, and his full name is uh, Peter Lim uh yeah. He is quite interesting on foreign affairs and on, for instance, China. Uh, it was in the a, 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 um, a Foreign Affair Monthly. Peter calls for an a la carte diplomacy instead of a wholesale buffet. <laughs> it was quite cute. Uh, into, uh, you know, the American attitude, one could argue, to China. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're on the other side. He's saying they we want to take a case-by-case approach to China, which... Mm-hmm. I think in a way is more aligned to the way Australia's now speaking. So mm. did you did you get a sense from people about how he might look outwards or not? Mm.
2: People did talk about that and um one interesting idea along that was the sense that actually Almost that Thailand is the buffet, and and China's just been coming and helping itself, and that perhaps what you can do is be a little more controlled in that. So I think that was the message I was hearing. Um, I think the other thing that could be interesting is whether he would take a different view on Myanmar. Um, you know, as a as a more democratically focused uh, politician, um, he may have a slightly different view than than Thailand has had, and. Insofar as anyone has much influence in Myanmar, and and I really mean that, it may be that no one has any influence, but if anyone does, then, you know, Thailand potentially might be able to, um, you know, moderate some of the the worst of Mm. what's happening over the border. So,
0: I mean, ambiguity is such a staple in Thai politics, as you're particularly looking from the outside. You know, the red shirts and the yellow shirts that so dominated our television a few years back, where are they in all of this?
2: yeah it's interesting um I, I understand it's it, it's not an absolute it hasn't uh, people haven't divided exactly on those lines I mean I would see it as a longer term struggle between I'm going to call them just tire elites for for, for um, you know for simplicity um, and the the sort of the the aspirations of the, the greater society um, that's partly a generational thing which we've seen mm. very clearly uh, and at some point, some sort of bargain has to be made between the elite and the society, or you will keep having the sort of instability that's happened. Another coup, have
3: they? Well, I, I mean, it is interesting. I mean, I think Melissa is right. There's this sort of cyclical effect in Thai politics, but this is uh, also a bit different in that, uh, you know, the, the the support for Move Forward is not just. I mean, we sort of think about the red shirts, yellow shirts, agrarian, mm-hmm. urban divide, but actually, it's the urban younger vote uh, that uh, came out to support Move Forward and, and PETA. So, you know, the, the, the Monarcho uh, military establishments in Thailand may think twice about cracking down on a party for which 40% of people in Bangkok have voted. Um, and that makes it quite different to, uh, say, old uh, you know, red shirt, yellow, yellow mm-hmm. shirt uh, I- interventions. I, I think it, it's true. I mean, it's anyone's guess whether this, this man will be prime minister. Um, at the moment, we're very much you know coming from the highs of the uh, May election into the weeds. As Melissa says, this is bargaining behind mm-hmm. closed doors, but it's not even bargaining with the establishment. It's bargaining with the uh, tax and Shinawatra opposition, the classical opposition which has had to accommodate to this new party that's only existed for two elections and has suddenly won an election. Uh, and they've been squabbling about who will be the Speaker of the Lower House, never mind who will be the Prime Minister. Um, so, you know, there's a lot happening here, very hard to track, very sort of, uh, you know, less glamorous than, than the sort of headlines we, we were hearing in, in May. But I think there are big, big hurdles ahead before we even think of of Peter's being Prime Minister. And if he is Prime Minister, you know, he'll have his plate full with uh, a reform agenda and internal politics in Thailand. I'm not sure he's given that much thought to foreign policy. Myanmar may be the exception just because of his democratic inclinations and that would be helpful for Indonesia in this year where they're the ASEAN chair and having to lead on the Myanmar response before Laos gets it next year and then, you know, almost Mm. no one has hope for that. Um, But uh, I don't think we'll be seeing a a, a much more sort of internationally engaged Thailand anytime soon. They're going to be... Inward looking uh, for a while to come.
2: And that is that, uh, um, sorry, Melissa? Oh, I was just going to say that the thing I was listening for a lot was how uh, Australia is now being viewed. So as Hervé said before, you know, orcas had quite an effect in the region and Thailand's one of the places that was really quite negative towards Australia over what they saw as, you know, inflammatory behaviour, sort of putting fuel on the fire of, of US-China relations. Um, and it was interesting to hear that um, that has moderated a lot, uh, that, um, you know, the, the sort of careful diplomacy and messaging that the government did around the last AUKUS capability announcement was really getting through and the sense that perhaps, you know, we're not as irresponsible as they were perhaps thinking.
0: So the diplomacy's mattered by the sound of you? <laughs> yes, I think so. Uh, Greg, your thoughts on this?
1: Uh, look, I think on on, on Thailand, the the obvious elephant in the room is that peter has come out very strongly or, or, or move forward has come out very strongly to say they want to reform um uh, the way that the monarchy exercises um, well, majest. Mm. yeah that's right and, and and that's the as the americans would say the third rail he's gone and and sort of addressed that and that may that may be the single thing that stops him becoming prime minister um, it may also be that behind closed doors he negotiates and says okay we want to make change, but not now. Um, perhaps there is some bargaining potential there, but that's that's why everyone, I think, is so anxious about the prospects of the Senate who are unelected uh, and appointed uh, blocking him because that's just the... the um, the too hard uh, issue in Thai politics.
0: And there's also, I gather, this um, rather unusual constitutional uh, matter where if you have, if you're deemed to have stakes in media, you're, you're disqualified. And that's very much in the hands of the, de- of, of the deciders. Like it, no one seems to be able to really itemise what that means, but it means a lot of people get just put out. Yes, I think
3: that's right. I mean, there's any number of ways in which you could try to take it out, right? The, mm, uh and and so, you know, and and I think this this sort of fragile potential coalition that we're seeing between the Perthai party and the Move Forward party so that you know, the old um, this, uh, opposition and new opposition could also very quickly unravel and and it's still possible that we could get a tie coalition with the old guard, with the Conservatives. Mm. Um, and so there are ways that you can manipulate the system. There are ways that you can target particular individuals. There are ways you could ban entire political parties. Any number of scenarios are still possible. And, and I think that's exactly why Melissa, going to Thailand, found very few people who would be willing to... Declare a yes. themselves.
0: Look, just before we move to Janet Yellen, finally, um, I suppose there is that question, here about AUKUS, which, Greg, which uh, Melissa referred to, and I, I was at a conversation you had with people like Damien Cave, who's the New York Times correspondent here, saying, look, maybe what hasn't been discussed is that AUKUS, for all its shock, introduced, sort of forced Australia into that world in a, in a perceptibly bigger way, mm. whatever it turns out to be. And that might actually um, be more acceptable in the region than we imagine. Now, this is very fluid, and you admitted at the time it was fluid. How are you feeling about that?
3: Yeah, look, I, I think uh, it's an interesting combination. I mean, and it's an interesting thought experiment whether this Labour government would ever have conceived of AUKUS had it been in power. I mean, that's that's kind of a big question. But here they are, they've inherited the legacy and they've owned it. Um, and on top of that, they've gone with this idea of strategic equilibrium, which is, you know, this idea that we need to push hard on restoring some of our partnerships outside of the US alliance framework, that it's more than just deterrence that will get us anywhere. It will be as much as as anything to do with you know regional order and that only works works with with working with countries who are not as aligned as we are on these big geopolitical and security questions. I I think there is more tolerance in the region. We're starting to see that. uh, For AUKUS, there's more normalization of of what it will entail. There's more work by Australia with the IAEA to reassure partners that we're not going to contravene the um, uh, non-proliferation treaty. Um, uh, And so, yeah, there, there is an opportunity here because AUKUS is a stage It does uh, insert ourselves in a bigger way to the conversation. Uh, I think the challenge though remains that with AUKUS being such a big beast, logistically but also politically, it, it sucks up so much of the conversation of Australia abroad that it's very hard for any government, uh, any well-meaning government, to then also say, no, that, well, there's a second flank to our foreign policy. It's not just national security. Mm. We are also out there in the region trying to do more... We should be uh, able uh, to do that, ...outside the US alliance framework. But But it requires... Uh, concrete action and not just, uh, you know, beautiful rhetoric.
0: Okay. So that is very much a work in progress. We'll return to that. Let's finish with um, US Secretary, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen on a four-day visit to China. And, of course, we had um, uh, Tony Blinken there recently and John Kerry is going very soon, the Environment Secretary. So it's all focused on easing tensions between the two largest uh, economies. Um do you think that she, the economic moderate, Heve, will make a difference in in some sort of reset or is that uh, overstating things? Uh,
3: you mean Yellen? Well, yes, yes, Yellen, yes, sorry. Yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, look, she's the good cop um, and they've deployed the good cop and I think, you know, expectations are still low. They're trying to create a floor under that relationship. Um, and what Yellen is trying to do essentially is to fulfil a, a very thankless task, uh, which is that they're trying to explain to the Chinese that on the one hand, the US wants a, a cooperative Economic relationship with China, what they call healthy competition. Uh, on the other hand, that the U.S. will not uh, back off from what you know from its national security carve-outs. You know these, this sort of uh, idea that um, AI chips, certain uh, technologies, the renewable sector um, uh, uh, are, are now the the preserve of national security, and and for which you need uh, uh, ex- export controls. And uh, Jake Sullivan, the national security advisor in the U.S., has spoken about it's kind of an odd analogy about a, a high wall small garden, high wall, which is to say we can still conduct business as usual, but mm-hmm. we're going to carve these things out. Uh, basically, they're trying to reassure the, the Chinese that they're not going to go for full-scale decoupling. In fact, trade between the US and China is still growing. It's
0: not containment. Uh,
3: but, uh, and so the West now talks about de-risking, but China still you know, despises that message because it hates to think of itself as a risk. Um, and uh, uh, there's a real question mark here about whether the US can really you know, carve out this really narrow path between uh, uh, competition on STEM steroids uh, uh, and and on the other hand uh, trying to say you know we, we want business as usual on economics.
0: Greg Barton, mm. how do you think this is heard in Southeast Asian climes?
1: I think one thing we've got to factor in here, Geraldine is that uh, and this is my personal view, but one of the greatest risks to China is is the regime of Xi Jinping. Um, China is often its own worst enemy through this this government. Particularly in the way it fails to execute soft power and, and seize opportunities to build confidence and win trust. So in Southeast Asia, people want to, like we all do, want to keep on trading with China and want want absolutely want peace and and security, but are cautious about China because China keeps giving signals that that make people nervous and. Uh, you know, undermines any sense that you can really be relaxed and and, and trusting. No one wants to be asked to pick sides publicly. No one wants to be asked to come out and sort of join AUKUS, which is not not possible, or even the the Quad Plus. Um, But quietly, people uh, don't want to be left alone in the region with China because China doesn't instill them with confidence.
2: And how did you hear it, uh, Melissa, on your tour? Yeah, well, I, I suppose just thinking about what I've heard from um, from Yellen so far, I agree with Yvette. She's the good cop um, who wants engagement, but gosh, on the reporting so far, she is not mincing her words, and it really struck me that she's very much talking to a domestic audience. Yes, um, public opinion, and is the reporting so is so for a domestic audience too. <laughs> exactly, but it means that there's not much room for for, for you know for, for improvement in relations because um, you know the US can't be seen. To be giving up anything, and that puts a, a real, you know, a, a real, real um, barriers around how much can be achieved through the visit.
0: But look, just finally, this—if if we can try to put words to the tone that emanates from the, the, our region, which is obviously what uh, Penny Wong is trying to navigate this strategic ambiguity. Like, I think for a lot of listeners, they say, "What is that?" You know, it's so abstract. But it does—does does it not have a re- represent? It's a tone that the. Southeast Asians-like hearing, isn't it?
3: Absolutely, and, and there's nothing wrong... Uh, in international relations, at least, with having a sort of promiscuous foreign policy, with 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 having multiple maybe uh,
0: agnostic is a better word. <laughs> uh,
3: no, 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 no. I think agnostic is too neutral. I think you, 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 we've got to be out there. We've got to be part of the Quad. We've got to be part of AUKUS. But at the same time, uh, there's no reason why uh, we shouldn't do more than that. You know, we 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 love our Cartesian lines in, in Australia, but in fact, if you look at Indonesia or any other Southeast Asian country, uh, you know, they, they're playing all sides, and and they that's part of the art of the diplomacy. And I think we need. To to be more comfortable with that as well and and it's only by doing that that we will reassure southeast asia that we're not just on one side of the ledger uh, in terms of the us alliance framework but that we we are very much part of the centre. Um, you know, we're very much playing in, in, in the middle of the action uh, and concerned mm. with these questions of regional order, concerned about you know, uh, trying to tame down the worst successes of great power competition, uh, and at the same time not have a, a region that's uh, overly dominated by a single power, i.e. China. Mm. And I think uh, if, if our messaging is that, uh, we, we will find friends, uh, mm. and we have to find friends from, from very different geopolitical
2: corners. And I, I think that messaging is the right messaging. My question is whether it's getting through. So... Uh, You know, if you think about the the countries in the region, they don't always think about us very much. Um, They have many other things to think about. And I I think we have to be quite consistent over a long time for that message to to really start getting into people's heads. So we've got to be much more comfortable with ambiguity. That's what you're both saying.
0: (laughs) We'll just use that word instead of promiscuous. I can just uh, here, I can just wait for the text line to start. Okay, look, thank you very much indeed, oh. Greg Barton uh, from uh, the Global Islamic Politics at Deakin University. Thank you to you. Thank you, thank you. And Herve Lemahieu, D- Director of Research at the Lowy Institute. Thank you to you. Thanks, Geraldine. And Melissa
2: Connolly-Tyler, um, I hope we'll have you back, Executive Director of Asia Pacific. Thank you. Well, and thank you for making <coughs> sure we look at these important issues for our, for our future. Thank you, Geraldine.
0: Yes, well, we do try, Melissa. Thank you very much for noticing. Greg Barton, Herve Lemahieu and Melissa Connolly-Tyler have been my guests. Greg Barton from Deakin University and the Asia Society Australia. Melissa Connolly-Tyler from Asia Pacific 4D and Herve Lemahieu from the Lowy Institute. Up next, to someone who's had to forge a path living between two worlds. Getting in touch with ABCRN is easy.